This is Booting Up, where we talk to the best in tech about early careers. You'll learn what it takes to get your first job and rise the ranks of the tech world. Now onto the show with host, Rod Dana. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Booting Up. You know, today we are talking with Clement Cow, who is a product manager at Blend, and he's also the co-founder of ProductManagerHQ.com, where they are teaching people how to become product managers and basically everything that you need to know about that. So we'll get into that in just a second, and I'll bring him on in, in, in just one minute. But before we get into that, you know, friendly reminder to everyone, subscribe to the channel. Uh, this is going to be the first episode of an exciting season. You're going to be learning a lot from a lot of different guests and different perspectives. So you don't want to miss it. And for anybody that might be listening on the podcast, you know, subscribe on your favorite platform. But otherwise, we'll be doing one episode a week, always live. So you can hop in the stream, ask any questions, and overall, just learn about how to break into tech. So uh, before we bring them on, also one more thing to shout out is if you're looking for our bootcamp grad community, you can join at apprentice.co slash community and join us there. But let's get on with the show. So so let's bring on Clement. Hey. Hey, Good afternoon. How's, how's everything going today? Things are going great. Nice and sunny here in Santa Clara, California. I'm really excited and humbled to be on the show. Right, thank you for, for hopping on. So. Where we want to start today is, you know, helping people first understand product management. It's kind of a, a field that not many people understand, even the ones that are in it. And I know you are kind of an expert. So first, can we start with what's your definition of product management? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think one of the things that can really help people understand what product management is, is actually to think about a world where there aren't any product managers first, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if we take a step back, right, like a world that didn't have any product managers, let's say maybe 20 years, 30 years ago, right, kind of you have these three core groups of people who exist in the world, right? So you've got people who are customers. And so customers are basically people who have pains, right? Like there are things that they wish they could get solved, but they don't really know how to solve them themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so customers are looking for solutions and they're eager to pay for that. Then you have businesses, right? So a business is defined as, you know, an organization who is trying to, you know, uh, create profits and be able to stick around for a long time to create that value and keep people employed, right? And they want to be able to find customers and be able to sell things to them. Then you've got what I call a development team. And so a development team is basically, um, you know, engineers, designers, people who are actually creating things. And what they're really excited about is how do we make stuff that we're excited about, but also in a way where it doesn't break all the time, right? So things that, you know, we think are really cool, um, but doesn't cause us to have to stay up all night trying to maintain it. And so, in this world without product managers, these three groups fight all the time, which is really frustrating for everyone, right? Because basically, right, like customers and businesses are always fighting against each other because customers want businesses to deliver things that businesses don't necessarily know how to deliver yet, right? Um, they want businesses to deliver on all of these promises and fulfill all these needs that the business might not be set up to do yet. And on the flip side, businesses are always trying to sell things to customers that customers don't really need, right? Because just because a business knows how to make a thing doesn't mean that all of customers want to have that thing, right? So mm -hmm. businesses and customers are always fighting over, you know, are you creating the thing that I want, right? And then similarly, customers and developers also fight all the time because customers will try to force developers to build things a specific way, right? Like I yeah. need this screen, like this specific way, I need a blue button here that like does this thing and that just doesn't make sense to build that way. But on the flip side, many times, you know, engineers and designers, they might get so excited about new technology that they'll try to ship it without really checking in on, you know, is this actually going to solve someone's pain, right? So, um, you know, there was 
uh, at some point in time, like a rise in chatbots, right? There was a lot of uh, thoughts about like, how can we make things, you know, all in the blockchain without really thinking about, well, how does that actually make a customer's life better, right? So customers and development teams also always fighting, right? And then development teams and businesses are also always fighting because businesses, they're always saying, well, you need to give us more features, more features, more features, because that's how we're going to be able to make money to stay in business, right? Makes sense. But on the flip side, engineers and designers are always saying, no, like what we built isn't scalable, doesn't look great. We need to refactor, we need to rethink the whole system, right? Like we want to uh, invest in scalability and robustness. And so, you know, in terms of velocity, businesses and development teams are also always stuck, right? Yeah. And so the one thing that actually solves the pains of customers, businesses, and development teams is the product in the middle, right? So a product is defined as something that solves customer pains in a way that keeps a business in business, right? Drives profits, drives revenues, and is something that developers are eager to build and maintain over time, right? And so then when we think about it that way, then it's actually pretty easy to think about what a product manager does, right? Because a product manager, they fill the white space between customers, businesses, and development teams to try to figure out what are the pains of each of these three groups and how do we build something that, you know, customers are gonna find valuable, that businesses are going to be able to earn profits off of, and that our development uh, teams, again, engineers and designers are gonna be really excited about building and maintaining. So that's really the core of what a product manager does. It's coordinate across these three groups and uh, work through a lot of, let's say, negotiations and coordination to really create something that's valuable to all three of them. So in summary, it sounds like your personality manager, basically. Basically, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're hurting cats, honestly. And the thing is, you know, kind of each of these three groups out in the world, right, like they have such different needs, right? And so that creates a lot of constraints on what makes a good product. But, you know, those constraints are actually really great because they force you to get creative. They force you to really start thinking about how can I try to solve for all of these three groups at once rather than trying to over-index on just a single one of those groups. Um, so yeah, it's very much, you know, hurting cats, really understanding um, the people that, you know, make up this group of people, right? Like what drives them? What are their mindsets? What do they care about? And really getting to understand them so that you can deliver that value to them without sacrificing value to the other two groups. So it's very much a juggling game. It's very much a relationship management game, um, but it's really exciting to be able to create things that are valuable for all three parties. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, you know, designers, developers, any, everyone involved in a product has to have that same mindset because lots of times, I'm sure many, many bootcamp grads knows you build this project and you think, Hey, like people will just, will just use it, but that's not the case. You have to do the research. So on, on your side, like in terms of what you're usually doing, do you do a lot of research into each person like in service or, or you focus on one? Yeah. Great question. So I think, um, so the way that, you know, I really try to get to understand my customers is, um, try to get feedback from a lot of different ways, right? So I think the thing that is of course most valuable is when you put a product in front of them and they react to it, right? And it doesn't have to be a full-blown yeah. product. It can be even just something as, uh, let's say low fidelity as a paper prototype, like just like some paper mocks, right? And kind of work through, okay, what is it that you think you see on this screen, right? Like, why is that particularly mm -hmm. valuable to you? Is this actually solving a pain for you, right? Just being able to get that time to really talk to customers and understand what is it that they're doing is really important to try to understand how are they making decisions. And so I'd say um, in terms of making sure that you know 
about what problems you're trying to solve, I would say that qualitative one-on-one -on -one interviews with customers is incredibly, incredibly important, right? I think, of course, surveys are valuable, um, but they're really only valuable when you're really at scale, right? So let's say you have yeah. hundreds of customers, thousands of customers, there's no way for you to interview every single one of them. Then being able to do a survey helps you kind of quickly eliminate a couple of paths of, okay, well, there's this broad category that doesn't make sense. There's this broad category that seems to make sense. And then from there, you can dive into those deeper one-on-ones um, with customers. And kind of the way that I think about it, of course, is with customers, right? You can have almost infinite customers um, if you're building a product, a software product that really scales. And so you really do need to balance in between having these one-on-one -on -one interviews versus surveys. But when you're working with your own teammates, you know, when you work with your business stakeholders in sales and marketing, when you're working with your engineers and your designers, it's all about those one-on-one -on -one touch points. It's all about really trying to understand the person and understanding what is it that they need from me, right? What are the things that keeps them up at night? What are the things that they really care about? And how can I really make sure that I'm representing their point of view as we try to work through how do we create something that makes our customers happy, keeps the business in business, and is something that's not a nightmare to build, right? And so it's really yeah. making sure that we can advocate for all three parties, even if one of them or two of them aren't in the room together. Um, so yeah, so um, I think a lot of it is, again, going back to that previous point you made, right? In summary, a lot of it is relationship management, and you can't really manage that relationship unless you first understand the person who is uh, that person's wants and needs and desires so that you can advocate for them and find something that will work for them. So, so going to, you know, the, the personality management. So, so what made you want to initially get into product management? Were you like, Hey, like I want to be managing all these people within the, the product itself, or what was that initial motivation? Yeah, that is actually a really good question. So I actually didn't know that I wanted to become a product manager. In fact, when I first heard about product management back in college, I thought there's no way I'm going to do this job, right? Because basically what people were telling me is, well, Clement, being a product manager means you get to write a bunch of tickets and you get to make sure that people do the tickets and then you get to tell people, oh, the tickets are done. And <laughs> I thought that's paper pushing. Like that's not yeah. valuable and that's not very fun. And so I actually didn't know that I wanted to be a product manager for a very long time. Um, I think I, I accidentally fell into product management um, through a series of accidents, I guess. Um, good accidents. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were really fantastic accidents. I think, um, you know, basically when I first graduated from college, um, I had this double major in business and biology. And the thing is, those two majors don't go particularly well together, like in like the business space. There's not a lot yeah. of careers that kind of just open up right out the gate. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to be a management consultant because as a management consultant, I get to be dropped into all these, you know, really high-performing companies, right? And I get to see a lot of the problems that they're going to be struggling with. How can mm -hmm. I help them, right? And so um, that's why I first started my career as a management consultant. And in terms of the way that we were doing our consulting, um, we basically had this, you know, proprietary analytics platform that we had ourselves that we would train our clients on so that they would be able to also answer some of their questions of how is our business performing. Yeah. But the thing is that platform was built by PhD statisticians and the end users were marketing analysts who didn't know statistics. And so the challenge was that the software was really hard to use. And so I was on the phone every day for three hours, four hours a day, just talking to people of, no, that's not how you set up the analysis. No, that's not what this error means. That's not statistical significance, right? Like just working through all of these things. And I thought this is incredibly wasteful, right? Like it's me and a hundred other consultants all on the phone three to four hours a day, every day yeah. talking to people about, no, this is not how you use the software. And so I actually um, started leaning into design and user research. So from there, basically I started interviewing my customers kind of rather than being, oh, like, let me be your tech support guy, right? Well, what is it that you expected when you hit that screen, right? Like, why doesn't this error make sense, right? What would it, what types of errors would make sense? 
Um, what were the objectives that you had, right? Like, where did we let you down? What was the gap, right? And so taking in all of that feedback and consolidating it for my product team at that consulting firm, right? And um, from there, basically, we started to work through prototyping. So how can we create a new generation of products that are going to be much more intuitive and usable for our customers? And from there, kind of, I became this kind of mini user researcher kind of person, um, while also still maintaining my full-time job as a management consultant, right? So kind of yeah. um, definitely a little bit too much of a good thing. So I was working, you know, 70 hour, 80 hour work weeks, and that just wasn't cutting it. Um, and so from there, basically, there was, um, there was another company that reached out that happened to know that I was good at, you know, both the management consultant, uh, like strategy side, as well as this user research side. And they said, well, Clement, what we want is we want you to join us because we are trying to figure out how can we launch a totally new business and we don't know how to launch that business unless we understand our users and it looks like you know exactly how to talk to users and create these new products that don't exist before right because that's what you've been doing um at your current company of uh, trying to figure out this next generation of more usable products and so i said okay but what's in it for me and they said oh well we're only going to make you work 50 hours a week right and we're going to give you 20 percent extra pay and i said okay i'm in right <laughs> like tell yeah. me no more i'm getting paid 20 percent more to do 20 percent less work right like i'm in um, so I hopped over to that basically a real estate brokerage company. Um, and one of the things that we were trying to figure out is basically we were really good at marketing to people who want to buy homes, right? Because the thing is when someone wants to buy a home, it's pretty clear when they want to buy one, right? Like they're going to schedule themselves for open houses. And so you know when to put a real estate agent in front of them, right? And as a real estate brokerage, our bread and butter is getting real estate agents to go, you know, help people buy and sell homes. But the problem is, we didn't know how to get a real estate agent in front of a person when that person wanted to sell a home, right? Because the thing is, when you decide to sell a home, you could take many, many months, many, many years to decide whether I want to sell a home or not. And if you put a real estate agent in front of them way too early, then you're wasting their time, you're taking up their attention, and they think, well, this is irrelevant. And if you service it to them too late, they already have an agent, and then you've lost, right? So kind mm -hmm. of how do you find that sweet spot of when to service that real estate agent to them? And so basically from there, I did a lot of that user research, again, of really trying to understand, you know, for people who are trying to sell their homes, how do they make these decisions and when they want to sell their homes? Why do they make that decision, right? And also working from the real estate agent side, across all of the customers that they've worked with, right, what triggers um, them to be successful, what triggers them to be not successful, kind of when is the best time to engage? And from there, basically, we were able to find, you know, we have this really compelling business opportunity to launch this startup within a startup. Um, basically to serve all of these people who are selling their homes rather than our traditional bread and butter of people who are trying to buy homes. So from there, um, we decided, okay, we're going to launch this business, right? Um, I kind of moved away from user research into uh, strategy slash management consulting of trying to convince my CEO, CFO, et cetera, of why this is going to make sense, right? So lots of uh, business analyses, right? Like lots of um, competitive analysis. And once we had finally convinced them, they said, great, we're going to go do this thing. And of course, because we are a tech-enabled real estate brokerage, we want to provide our real estate agents with technology, right? So we need product people to go make the, uh, make the products to help real estate agents also sell homes. And they said, okay, existing product managers, anyone want this thing? And everyone said, no, I'm busy, right? Like I'm trying to help people buy homes. Trying to figure out how to help people sell homes is way too freaking difficult right now. We don't have the time. Yeah. And so basically my exec team had two choices. They could either try to go hire another product manager outside the organization, right? And like, that could be risky because they don't know what we've been up to. They don't know the customer, right? Like they are coming totally new and, you know, they don't necessarily know kind of the business and kind of the value proposition and, you know, our brand, our working processes, or they could take this user researcher and, you know, turn me into a product manager and um, see what happens, right? Because I had convinced them that we should launch this business. So I already knew 
the, the customers, right? I already knew the business. The only thing that I was missing was I didn't know how to work with designers and engineers yet. And I told them so. I said, this is a mistake, right? Like I have never worked with an engineer. I have never worked with a designer. I don't think this is the right call. They said, you're overthinking it. We're going to have you sit down with the designer for a week. We'll, we'll have you sit down with an engineering manager for a week and you'll figure it out. And that's what they did. So I sat down with the designer and hung out with them for a week. Then I shadowed an engineering manager for a week and learned a bunch about release processes, right? Like, um, how do you do like QA testing, right? Like, how do you make sure that your code doesn't like break? Um, how do you make sure that you're designing things that, you know, make a lot of sense? How do you actually conduct research? How do you iterate through um, different mocks? And from there, basically, I became an associate product manager, right? And I think, you know, wrapping all the way back to how did I become a product manager? It was a lot of accidents, right? Like I didn't necessarily say like, oh, I specifically want to become a product manager. But I think when you look at the general trajectory, right? I was always trying to do more than what my job said, right? So like my job said that I should be a management consultant, but I got sick of being a management consultant because my users were really struggling to understand how to work with the software. So I became a mini user researcher, right? When I became yeah. a user researcher, I could have just said, here, here are the results. You guys go figure out if you want to invest in this business or not. But I said, that's not enough we have a compelling opportunity to make the world a better place. We should launch this business. And so I moved into that strategy role. And so it was basically, I was always trying to do kind of more in parallel to what I was already doing. That kind of led me to fall into product management, which is the ultimate role of filling white space, right? Like when there is a yeah. vacuum, it is all about jumping oh, yeah. in and closing that vacuum and delivering that value when no one else is eager to take it. Um, so that's kind of how I fell into product management um, over a series of you know two to three years, yeah. Yeah, so basically they came to you like, hey, you're gonna you're gonna be a founder over here. And then they ran you as an experiment. Basically, yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing, you know, it worked out though. So, so th this was at uh, Movado, Movado? Yeah, this was at Movado, yeah. Okay, and and then initially, so you started out as an associate product manager, right? Mm -hmm. And then looked like within two years, you were a group product manager. So I'm guessing the experiment went well, but what, what else would you say helped you rise the ranks? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so uh, first off, um, in terms of running that, you know, business within a business, right? So uh, we were able to, within, you know, less than a year, have that business within a business, have more revenue than the entire existing business had over the past 12 years of existence, right? And so like, it was, I was strapped to a rocket ship. It was really, so they, really they loved you. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was a ton of fun. Um, and so just in terms of, you know, how I jumped up so quickly, right? I think a lot of it was kind of similar to what I said before of just filling in the gaps, right? I think um, a lot of times people are afraid to do more than what their job says they're supposed to do because they're worried that, you know, I'm putting myself at risk and putting myself um, up for criticism, right? Like if I do this other stuff, people are gonna ask, well, why aren't you doing your original job enough? Or like, am I gonna be rewarded for taking on this additional work? I think for me, I didn't really worry so much about, will I be rewarded? Will I be punished? It was more about there is a white space and no one is making this better. I need to jump in and close this gap because no one else is going to do it if I don't, right? And so I think a couple of things that would be helpful for folks um, for folks to listen to, right, is basically in terms of product managers moving up in seniority, the kinds of problems that you tackle are different in terms of scope, right? So the thing is, a lot of your day-to-day -day processes are going to be kind of similar, but kind of the open question is how well-defined is the problem that you're trying to attack, right? So when I was first starting as an associate product manager, it was very clear what I had to deliver. So basically we knew exactly what we had to get out the door. And so uh, kind of my mentor product manager said like, this is the thing that you're gonna be shipping, right? So kind of here are the bounds, um, you need to get it done in this time. These are the kind of like mini problems that you need to go figure out in terms of 
oh, should the button be here or there? Right? Like how might we optimize it through A-B testing? But the initiative was really well defined, right? Like ship this thing in this particular timeframe and just make sure yeah. it gets done. But when you become a product manager, right? Like no one is giving you initiatives. People are now giving you problem areas and it's your job to figure out what initiative am I going to go create to go attack that problem area, right? So as a kind of full-time, you know, uh, full product manager, um, you are given a problem area that has been defined for you, but you have to define the initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. And then as a group product manager, you're given and you are given a business, and now it's your job to go define the problem areas and then to go define the initiatives that will then go solve those problem areas, right? So kind of the more you kind of rise the ladder, the more fuzzy things get and the broader the scope of challenges that you have to go tackle. And so part of the reason why I was able to uh, jump up so quickly was actually due to um, partially fortunate or unfortunate timing. So the thing is kind of, as I continued to work as an associate product manager, what happened was that um, my mentoring product manager left the organization, right? And so now I had no one to define initiatives for me. So I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I guess I'm just gonna define an initiative for myself. And so kind of that is where I started moving into, okay, I've got these problem areas that I now need to go attack to keep this totally new business that got spun up alive, right? Like what are the things that we absolutely need to get done? What are the initiatives that I think make sense? Let me go pitch this to the CEO. Let me pitch this to, you know, our COO, our CFO, and just make sure that things keep running, right? And that was all good and well up until my director also left. And so now there was no one running the business. And so I said, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to step up and do even more. And so how do I tackle all of these uh, kind of different problem areas in a way that makes sense across all these different teams, right? So I think um, in terms of rising the ranks, right? I, if those folks had not left at the times that they had left, I don't think I would have necessarily been promoted as quickly. I think the other thing to really keep in mind is people don't typically give you the title unless you've already been doing the work for a quarter or so, right? Because yeah, really titles great. are, yeah, like titles are kind of retrospective, you know, like kind of they kick in after the fact. Um, because the thing is, if people give you a title and then you flare out, like you don't meet the promise, right? Then that looks really bad to the company. Like that looks really bad on leadership. And so they really want to make sure that you are a known bet. And so when you are stretching yourself and kind of tackling the next level ups work and you're demonstrating that you can do that all really well, then it's basically almost risk-free for the executive team to say, okay, great, they deserve that title, right? They've already done it for a while. Like the results look fantastic. And so we're just going to give it to them, right? And so I think a lot of it is less about how do I get what I want? And it's more about how do I give other people what they need? And by giving people value, by creating this value in the world, other people will give you back value in return because you've solved one of their pains, right? Because the thing is, again, like I could have waited for my executive team to go hire another full PM. And I said, no, I'm just going to step in because I've seen how he runs the show. I'll figure out how to run the show. Don't worry, right? I could have waited for my executive team to hire another director of product. And I said, I'm not going to wait around. Like we have a business to run. I'm stepping in, like we will figure this out. And so I think a lot of it is just taking that ownership and that initiative to go attack a problem. Even if you don't feel well equipped to attack the problem, that courage and that conviction to bet on yourself and the humility to learn from people who were previously attacking the problem, I think were all really valuable for me to jump up the ranks that quickly. Well, I, I'm with Beth on this. I'm, I'm loving this. Uh, but uh, so, so two points I want to like just reiterate from what you said. So one was, uh, so, so 
everyone, you know, you have to work hard, obviously, to, to move up. But the difference between people that just work hard and you know do the same thing forever versus people that work hard and rise is, like you said, take taking that little risk and doing that that little extra that maybe you you like you're scared of some pushback, but that's what makes you stand out. And then the second thing that I want to harp on also that you said is doing the job before you have it. So like, I know, so I come from, from data science and when I, when I mentor students, they're like, yeah, like all these data science jobs want PhDs. I'm like, I'm like, go apply for data analyst jobs and then just do data science work. Like if you do that extra, your, your manager is not going to complain. Like your manager's going to be happy. Exactly. So, what, so you know, whether you're a data scientist, developer, designer, uh, if you want to, guess be product manager do a little bit of product management take a little bit more responsibility and then it's it's easier to get into that role exactly and i think one of the things you know that um you hit on which is super super true is just because companies give you a job posting and there's a bunch of requirements in there mm -hmm. doesn't actually mean that that's how they're truly filling the role like yeah. kind of that is how they want other people to think about the role but at the end of the day if you wind up solving the business's pain, they hire you. Like that's just how it works, right? And so if you're in there, exactly like you said, like if you're in there as a data analyst and you're already stretching up to do data science work, like without asking for more pay, right? Like you're just taking away all of that work from the company and it's like your headache now and not theirs. They're gonna say, I don't see why they shouldn't be a data scientist, right? Like they're already doing the job fantastically. I don't know why we would go hire another one because that's a lot of expense. This person's already well-trained. They know how the company runs. They already have a track record. We're already giving them feedback to do the right thing. This is fine, right? Like be a data scientist, whatever. You don't have to have a PhD. So totally like taking that ownership and knowing when to stretch in to go take pains away from your manager and your manager's manager, right? Like solving those headaches on their behalf is a really great way to not only grow your own skill set so that you can lean on that if you ever leave the company, but also within the company, because you've created that value, it is much harder for people to say, oh, well, we shouldn't promote them, right? Because you've created that value and they didn't know how to tackle that before. Um, so yeah, totally resonate with the strategy um, that you are, uh, that you're leveraging in terms of uh, mentoring a uh, data analyst to break into data science for sure. Yeah, and then you, well, you obviously do some mentorship too. So I guess after two years as, as a product manager, you decide to start product manager HQ. So what initially motivated you to do that and give back and what was the process like to start that up yeah great question um so honestly i think a lot of a lot of my work for product manager hq has been me trying to solve my own pain right because basically uh how do i phrase this at that time right like i didn't really have all those resources um, in play like as i mentioned right like I had a manager leave and I had a director leave. And so I was really struggling of how do I actually do all of this stuff? I feel very isolated and alone in terms of making all of these things work on my own. Yeah. And so I really wanted to solve a pain for myself, right? So um, Kevin, my co-founder and I, uh, we really were uh, focused on, you know, how do we create a community where people can talk shop, right? Like how do we um, have a way for people to not feel so isolated and to be able to come together um, to figure out like what are all the different problems that we're tackling and how can we provide each other with new perspectives so that we can tackle that, right? So kind of um, that is how we started spinning up the Slack community for Product Manager HQ, right? And then in terms of how that continued to organically evolve, right? So um, from there, right, I think one of the things that we started noticing is, okay, well, we all have our own experiences, but how are we going to grow 
if um, we don't get kind of additional external input. And so one of the things that we started doing is, well, look, everyone is trying to go read up on product management resources, right? Like everyone's trying to figure out what is the best content out there. And the challenge is there's so much, right? Like you could theoretically read about stuff yeah. in psychology or business or design or data or analytics or engineering. There's so much stuff out there, right? Like how do I know how to prioritize my time? And so rather than let everyone have to go try to figure out how to reinvent the wheel and go look for all these resources, we start pulling together a newsletter so that that way we would already have kind of a curated pre-filtered, these are the things that you really got to read this week to continue to grow. Don't worry about the rest because like we've condensed it down for you, right? And so, you know, as of today, right, like our newsletter has been honestly really amazing. We've had more than uh, 30,000 uh, subscribers every week. I think oh, our open rates are more than 33%. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty wow. crazy. Um, and so kind of that was meant to solve our community's pain of we can't all be trying to figure out what to read, right? Like there's just too much stuff out there. How do we make sure that we can help people prioritize their time wisely? I think then from there, then kind of we organically discovered another pain of, well, great, there are all these resources, but there are just some things that aren't really well covered yet, right? I think one of the things that there wasn't a lot of coverage on before was like, how do you become an associate product manager, right? Like there just wasn't a lot of guidance around that, right? There's a lot of gaps around how to become a business to business product manager or how a platform product manager works every day. And so as we discovered these gaps, we said, well, it's not fair that we know this stuff and no one else in the world knows this stuff. Why don't we write, right? And so we then created, you know, PMHQ, um, the blog, so that that way we could share our own internal insights and kind of contribute back to that product management literature to help a global community of product managers all continue to grow together and to close those gaps where we had that expertise, but no one else had that, right? So kind of in terms of those three core pillars of product manager HQ, the Slack community, the newsletter, and the blog, all of that really came from, you know, Kevin and I trying to solve our own pains as we discovered them. It was very organic. I don't think we necessarily had like, oh, we're going to try to generate, you know, however much revenue by whatever time or get how many, however many users. It was all yeah. focusing on there's a pain in the world. We're going to go solve this pain. And when we saw that market validation and resonance of, yeah, this pain is really painful. And like, you guys are doing a great job of solving it. That's when we doubled down and continued to invest in those areas for sure. Yeah, I think that's how the best products always come about. It's you have a need and then you build it yourself. Like you, you are your own customer, so exactly. you know what you need. And I think that's, that's also something to consider for early you know, tech careers. Choose a company where you actually like the product, where it solves one of your needs because you're gonna connect to that and produce better work with that. Uh, one question I have just like from the entrepreneur side of things is how mm -hmm. did you build that newsletter to 30K? Like, like what was the initial momentum that got that thing going? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there, unfortunately, I do have to defer to Kevin. Um, my <laughs> other marketing. Um, he, he's a lot more on the actual growth side and I'm a lot more on kind of like the content side. Um, but yeah, I think, um, a lot of it was just, um, I think back during that time, um, Coral was a lot hotter than it is now. And so I think one of the things that we did was basically, um, we would jump into Quora or different forums, right? And basically say, oh, well, here is a question that people have, we're gonna answer this thing. By the way, link back to productmanagerhq.com, right? Like here's our newsletter, et cetera, right? And kind of that continuous link backing was very helpful. And of course, having strategic partnerships kind of across um, other organizations, um, so of course, um, there are all of these companies who all have their own newsletters, right? And kind of when we see that there's a synergistic effect between the stuff that we're sharing and the stuff that they're sharing, sometimes we'll promote their content, they'll promote ours, and kind of that way we get that continued traction. 
um, without having to do all of it ourselves, because that is the way that partnership works, right? And of course, on the flip side, then a company who is running their own newsletter, right? Like they are able to access more custom, more potential customers if they're selling things to product managers, as well as really great talent, right? Because everyone's looking for amazing product managers and where do, like, what do the most amazing product managers do? They try to level themselves up. And so they're in the PMHQ community, right? So yeah, they yeah. are finding the talent or the customer base that they need. And so kind of these partnerships where we co-market together um, are very, very powerful. Gotcha. So, so looking at productmanagerhq.com, I know you're, I think you write an article a week or maybe even more. Uh, what's the most read post on there? Uh, what, like, what are people most looking for and engaging with there? Yeah, for sure. So to better fine tune your question, right? I think there's a difference between, you know, what is most read versus let's say what most deeply solves the pain just because in terms of what's most read, right? Like that's not just necessary. It doesn't just solve the pain, but it also has really great SEO. It has really great link facts, et cetera. Yeah. And so our, our most read post is our um, breakdown of the product design interview question. So basically the question, how would you design a product for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And kind of um, that we, you know, we've racked up, you know, over a hundred thousand views um, over the last few years. Right. And I think the reason for that is because we jumped into that space pretty early, right? Like back then there weren't a lot of people who are trying to do uh, interview question breakdowns, right? So basically how do you tackle this particular interview question in a way that's structured, that makes sense rather than just saying a thing from your own experience in kind of an unstructured way, right? So because we had attacked that space, that was one of our first articles in how do you actually break down a problem uh, very, very thoughtfully in a really structured way. Um, we got a lot of resonance from there, right? And so kind of um, year over year, kind of that is one of our highest performing um, articles just in terms of views. Um, but in terms of, you know, what are the most deeply impactful ones? Um, you know, maybe their views aren't quite as high because uh, they aren't necessarily the specific search terms that people look for. But when I think about the ones where people will reach out to me unsolicited and say, Clement, you changed my life. I didn't realize that you could do it this way, or I didn't realize that I could become a product manager this way, right? I think a lot of that comes with, um, I think kind of the most valuable piece that we have there is how to think of yourself as a product, right? Because I think a lot of times yeah. when people want to become product managers, right, they're always thinking about it from their own perspective, which is, you know, a fair, normal perspective to have of, I want to be a PM. I want to do something, right? Like I want to get into this industry. I want to do really cool stuff. I want to build stuff, right? But they don't think about it in terms of it doesn't really matter what you want to do. It actually matters what a company needs, right? Because the thing is people yeah. don't create jobs for you to take them. They create jobs because they don't know how to solve the problem and they need someone to come in to solve it for them, right? And so the thing is, if you're not actively thinking about what is the pain that I'm trying to solve, what are the things that I'm naturally really good at doing and how do I aim at attacking those pains, you won't differentiate yourself, right? You're not going to be able to stand out to the company that needs you the most. You just, you just keep saying like, oh, I want to be a PM. I want to be a PM, right? And kind of that doesn't give you a lot of traction, right? And so I think um, kind of the most transformative articles that we have are all kind of in that vein of let's flip the paradigm of rather than what is it that I want, right? How do I create value for other people, right? So how do I identify the kinds of companies that I want to apply for? How do I catch their attention? How do I understand the pains that they have? And how do I build up my skill sets to demonstrate to them that I will solve their pains in a way that no one else can, right? And kind of that has enabled so many people to successfully break into product management. And so, you know, the view counts on that particular article are lower, 
but I would say that they've been more life-changing. So rather than just, you know, tactically, how do we change, how do you tackle a single interview question? It's how do you identify your hypothesis, your thesis of what is the value that I bring into the world and prove that thesis by finding the companies, your target audience that will really resonate with that. Gotcha. So, so kind of drawing from, you know, some of those, those same articles, uh, if you were talking to right now, like a developer, a designer, what would you want them to know as a product manager? So, so not for them to get into product management, but more, what do you want them to know to like cooperate properly? Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a really good question. And so I think, um, and the thing that is really important is that I think there's a lot of misconception, you know, not just even from developers uh, and designers, but really just from kind of the, the broader job market itself of product managers are the decision makers. And yes, kind of, but not really. Because the thing is, you have to remember all the way back at the start, um, we said, you know, a product manager is trying to find a solution that's going to work for customers and the business and the development team, right? And so you're always constrained by serving those three, right? Like you are always in a position of servant leadership. You're always trying to make other people's lives better. And so you don't get to just say, I want this vision to be this way and I'm going to go do all this cool stuff myself. It's, I need to go figure out what are people's biggest headaches and do they actually need me to go solve that for them, right? And so you're always thinking on other people's behalf. And so I think, you know, many times, um, you know, developers or designers, they will say, you know, well, gee, I don't know why you haven't written the ticket yet, or I don't know why you don't have the requirement yet, or I don't know why we're still stuck here. And it's, yeah, it takes time for us to understand what the customer needs. And even if we find out that that's what the customer needs, the business might not need it. Like it might not be valuable. Right. And so, you know, there are many times when, you know, you might get these feature requests from a bunch of users, but it doesn't meaningfully move the business forward. In fact, it might move the business backward because you're tacking you're attacking a space that doesn't make thematic sense for the business, right? Okay. And so I think, you know, um, I think, of course, it is good for people to be vocal and to raise their concerns, right? Like if, you know, if your counterpart product manager, like as a developer, as a designer, if your counterpart product manager seems to be paralyzed or seems to not be moving as quickly as you'd like them to, right? Of course, ask them honestly, genuinely, like, how are you doing? Where are you blocked? How can I help out? And the thing is, it's likely that they have a pretty good sense of what's going on in, you know, the, what's going on from like a development perspective of how are we currently thinking about it in terms of building it or designing it, but that there's probably some challenge happening in terms of coordinating with customers or really understanding the business and getting folks to coordinate that, right? So I think um, for product managers, we're always trying to play this balancing game of we've only got the same, you know, 24 hours a day that everyone else has, but we need to go talk to customers and the business and, you know, development teams um, in a way that continues to move everyone forward at their pace, right? So basically, you know, the customer has gone a whole work day and the business has gone a whole work day and the development team has gone a whole work day and the product manager needs to make enough progress to keep all three of these on the same workday pace, right? And so that's a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, certainly not saying that you should, uh, you should let your product managers be late. They shouldn't be, right? Like they have a, they have a responsibility to you to deliver on time. But if you see them struggling, just have some empathy that, it's not just us trying to figure out what design makes sense or, you know, what makes sense from an engineering perspective. Fundamentally, the thing that we're trying to build needs to provide value to both the customer and the business too. And trying to get those pieces to work together can sometimes be a very difficult challenge. Um, so just, I would say that that is the thing that is most important is it's not like we get to unilaterally say, we're going to do things this way. It's we should be wise and understand what decision we're making 
to move the business forward and to move the customers forward. So even though in theory, we have the power to say, oh, like, let's go do this thing that provides no value in practice, we shouldn't, right? Like it's a responsibility that we need to make sure that we are always being servant leaders and providing value to customers and to our business. And that means that we need to take the time to go understand who are our customers? What do our customers need? What is the business? Where's the business going? And how to get all these things to line up in a way that still works with what we are designing and then actively building. So it takes time. So, so looking at your job right now at Blend specifically, like mm -hmm. uh, what would you say is a split between, you know, all the synthesized information from all these sides, meetings and surveys, whoever it might be, and like project management. So, you know, signing tickets and deadlines and all that stuff. What, what's the split like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, I think part of the challenge is it really depends on the, it depends on both the life cycle of the initiative as well as who your teammates are, right? And so I would say that, um, you know, I've definitely had some initiatives where I was a lot more on the, I was a lot more on like the strategy side and I didn't necessarily have to worry as much about the project management side of what are the deadlines, et cetera, because I had really strong engineering counterparts, design counterparts, uh, business counterparts in terms of running the business operations and making sure that customers get set up on time, et cetera. And so there, right, like I had a lot more focus on, okay, what is our vision? What is our strategy? What is it that the market actually needs? And take a lot of that time to go talk to customers, right? Um, on the flip side, sometimes you just wind up in, you know, pure execution mode where you just have to get things out the door and, yeah. you know, 99% of your time is spent in project management of, okay, I need to give this status update to these different customers who we're all trying to ship with and make sure that also that when they report bugs back, right, like we figure out how to slot them into the sprints, but in a way that doesn't thrash people so that that way they don't get snapped in between these different work streams and get interrupted because that causes them to be less productive. We need to make sure that we're also keeping our executive team up to date, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are some days where it's 99% project management and there are some days where it's 1%. I think it just really depends on what initiative are you tackling? Kind of how mature is that? How many customers do you have? And kind of who are your teammates? Because if you're trying to, say you're trying to you know, launch a totally new product for, um, you're trying to launch a totally new product, right? For a single customer, right? And that single customer is worth a lot to your business you're gonna be spending a lot of time doing project management because it's really important that everyone's on the same page and that everyone's got the same status. And because it's a new initiative, right? Like the company is not betting the house on doing everything through that initiative, right? So it's basically just you running the project management as well as the actual um, strategy, as well as the actual like learning synthesis, et cetera. Whereas on the flip side, if you're tackling a much more mature product, right? Typically a company is gonna have a lot more infrastructure in place mm -hmm. to go gather that customer research on your behalf to go coordinate across engineering teams, right? To go coordinate across design teams, et cetera. And so from those perspectives, right? Kind of, you'll have a lot more time to kind of work through deeper level thinking rather than just executing all the time if you're working on a more mature product. Makes sense. Uh, so, so one thing for, for the audience, if you have any questions, you could start writing them. We'll, we'll get to those in, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but, but before we get to that, so Clement, I want, I know you wrote three books. So one, the first question is basically like, how did you decide, hey, I'm going to go out and write this whole book? And then like, what's that process like? Yeah, for sure. Um, so in terms of why I decided to write a book and, you know, keep in mind that this is only my reason for writing a book, right? Like it doesn't have to be your reason for writing a book. The reason why I wrote is because one of the things that I noticed is, you know, um, in terms of all the articles that I'm writing all the time, right? I think people find it valuable, but they only find maybe one or two articles per 
year, let's say, right? And the thing is, I want to help people be able to not just break into product management, but also be better product managers and, you know, be, be better colleagues to engineers and designers and business stakeholders, right? Like I really want people to be able to do their best work and to keep businesses running. And so the thing is, I noticed the challenge with having a blog is that you're competing against the rest of the internet for people's attention, right? It's really hard to get someone to actually sit down and take the time and go read through all of your other articles, right? Like the thing is, yeah. PMHQ, like as a blog, currently has more than 100 articles. I think we're currently at like the 180 or 190 mark. Um, and the thing is, no one's read them all, right? And that's completely fair because it's a blog. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to help people kind of break away from those distractions and actually have like an end-to-end -end book of how am I actually supposed to break into product management, right? Because it's like, yes, you read my article on how to write a really good resume. And you read my article on, you know, how to tackle this particular interview question. But these things flying at you randomly, like when you're looking at it, let's say, you know, maybe during a lull in your workday at 3 p.m., right? like it's not going to stick with you, right? Like, cool one, yeah. like, I want to give people the, the delivery mechanism for them to be able to take actual concerted action to go change their own career trajectories, right? And so I decided a book is the best way to go do that because it forces you to sit down and actually work through it, but without you know being something like, let's say, a movie, right? Where like you're forced to kind of sit all the way to the end, you can always stop kind of halfway through, right? And so that's what initially got me to think, okay, well, I really need to go write a book. And the one that matters the most is breaking into product management, because that's the thing that people have a lot of struggle in terms of figuring out, like, how do I even get started, right? Like, what is product management? Like, is it really for me, right? Like, what am I going to face as I move through that process? And so basically that's how I got started in terms of writing the books. I think because of a lot of the success that um, I got to see um, from that very first book, I decided that, you know, it's not just people who are trying to pivot into product management who have this challenge of, I don't have a concerted action plan and I don't have like a one-stop resource, right? People who are existing product managers also have the same problem, right? Like, again, there are all these articles out there. There's all these newsletters I could subscribe to how do I actually take tangible steps to become better, right? And so, again, I kind of took that same approach to write my other two books, um, Excellent Execution as a Product Manager, which is more focused on how do I actually run the show? And so a little bit more towards that project management side, but of course, also just getting the things done. And then uh, my latest book, which I released actually this morning, um, Refining Your Product Skills, is more about how do I collaborate with other stakeholders um, and really like get the ball moving, as well as expand into these other product skill sets um, you know, that, you know, people don't normally talk about as frequently, right? So, um, you know, when you think about data analytics, right? Like, yeah, there's data analytics, but like, what are the metrics that actually matter? How do you actually pick a metric that matters, right? Like, I think there's not a lot of discussion about that. And so putting that in the same place as how do I manage other product managers? How do I manage upward and manage my manager? How do I manage my executive team, right? Um, is a really valuable way for someone to reflect on the totality of all the things that I'm doing day to day and take that time to think, okay, well, it seems like I'm actually doing pretty well at analytics. It seems like the thing I'm not doing so hot on is how do I actually do interviews, right? Like, or how do I actually go talk to my executive team and then take that time to go uh, refine that place, right? So again, kind of for me, writing the book was, writing the books was less about, I have these totally new ideas that don't exist. It's the ideas already exist. People just aren't getting to them. How can I package them together more tightly so that people have the opportunity to step away from their screens and not be distracted by a blog and actually sit down and work through that to make a meaningful change to their careers. Yeah, no, it's a huge difference, blog to book. So I, yeah. I definitely feel that in terms of dissecting information, 
you know, everyone shares blogs all day and you're like, Hey, that looks interesting. But once you get to read it, like sometimes when you even get to read about a book, it's personal, you can read it whenever. Um, but also, I guess it's very clutch timing that we got you today, uh, right when the launch. So when, when you launch also like all these books, they're all on Amazon, I'm assuming. Yeah. They're on Amazon. Awesome. So, so I guess, yeah, if anyone want, are interested in them, definitely search for Clement's name they, they should all show up over there. Uh, and with, with publishing a book, you, you know, one topic that comes up in, in tech in general, but also probably with publishing a book is imposter syndrome. So did you have any of that? Like when you were getting ready to publish that first book? Yeah, totally. I, um, I, I had a lot of nights where I was thinking, wow, what am I doing? Like, am I really the right guy to be doing this? Like, there are so many other people who have written better things than I have, right? Like, is a book really the best thing to be doing? So definitely had a lot of imposter syndrome, I think. And you hit the nail on the head, right? Imposter syndrome is not just a thing that happens in publishing, right? It's a thing that happens kind of across tech and even just across all of our work lives, right? A kind of, you know, no matter what kind of work you're doing, Anytime you're trying to create something of value in the world, there's always fear of what if someone rejects it, right? Like, what if I'm not the best person to do it? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the challenge of imposter syndrome is, you know, it's, it's, it's you holding yourself to impossibly high standards. And so one of the things that I've personally found to be really valuable for working through imposter syndrome and working through write, like writer's block is just to keep reminding myself, I only need to make one person's life better, right? Like, I don't need to make everyone's life better. But if I made one person's life better through the work that I did, I have made a difference, right? And so the thing is, as long as you can create value for just one person, even if that person is yourself, right? Like there are others like that person, right? And so you just need to go and do something that is better than nothing, right? Because again, if we think about, you know, mm-hmm. let, let's take the perspective away from you as someone who's trying to create something, right? As you as the, you know, quote unquote, potential imposter, let's think about it from the world's perspective, right? Globally, from the world, if you did not create the thing that you're going to create, the world is missing that permanently, right? Like that is a gigantic loss because what if 10 people, 20 people could have benefited from that work, right? Like it's it's not as much about kind of, it's not so much about you as, you know, am I the right person to do this? Or like, is this going to be as amazing as I think it's going to be? It's how do I make the world a slightly better place just through my work? Like how can I make it just a little bit better, just make one person's life somewhat easier. If I can do that, I can do anything, right? So I think it's more about lowering that standard away from, mm-hmm. I want my book to sell a million copies because let's be real, like my book <laughs> don't sell millions of copies, right? Very rare. How do I get one person to open that book and say, oh, thank God, this is somewhat clearer than everything else I've read, right? Like that's a win, that's a gigantic win, right? So it just has to be somewhat better than what already exists out there. Go get it done, right? So I think that's really the key is how do you create something that is a little bit better in the world than what currently exists? And that's enough. It doesn't, it just has to provide value for just one person. It doesn't have to be the best thing in the world. You don't have to become, um, you know, Elon Musk, right. Or like, um, Bill Gates within a single day, right. Just get something out there and make someone's life better. And that will help you continue to move forward and fight your imposter syndrome. Exactly. Like, you know, you can only lose by not publishing or, or putting out whatever you want to put out. It's like, if, like you said, if it's just one person, like for me, if I get one view on a video, I'm like, I'm like, yes, like, it's like someone watched it. Like, that, that's exactly. awesome. Like, yeah, hopefully I help them out. And that, that's how you have to think. It's you take it one step at a time. If, if it blows up, it blows up. If, and if not, if it serves you, it makes you happy, then why not? Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's perfect. And uh, one question I, I want to close on, because I know everyone always will wonder is, 
if you were if you were coming out of a boot camp right now, let's uh, I should say um, you studied either engineering or design, you could choose. What would be your game plan to go out and get your first job? Fantastic question. And so um, again, that goes back to something I hit on earlier, um, which is you got to make it not about you. You got to you got to think about it from the employer's point of view, right? So what is the pain that I'm trying to solve, and for who, right? Because the thing is, as a developer, let's say, right there are different organizations, different companies out there that might have different tech stacks, right? And it might not make sense if I try to apply as like a generic software engineer to all these different companies, when instead I might be a really great backend engineer. I might be a really great front end engineer, right? Like what is the thing that will help me stand out? And the only way that you're gonna know that is to pick a target, right? Basically you gotta reverse engineer the job search. So instead of you saying, I want to be hired, it's what company would hire me, go after them, right? Like go and really understand what is their pain? What are they struggling with? And why did they open that job in the first place? Because again, we got to remember employers honestly hate making jobs, right? Because when they open up a job, what do they have to do? They have to go pay that salary, but they also have to recruit and they have to pay benefits and then they have to onboard you and then retain you and make sure that you don't leave. That's a lot of work. And so if an employer could solve that pain with their own workforce right now, they wouldn't have opened the job, right? So they have a pain. There is something that is really, truly painful that they can't get done without someone stepping into that role. You need to go figure out what is that pain, right? And so the thing is, you know, being an engineer at a 10-person startup is completely different from being an engineer at a 5,000-person like 5, company, right? And so, you know, working in the public space is very different from working in nonprofits, which is very different from working in... Um, you know, if you're working in government versus nonprofit versus, um, you know, like private markets, they're all totally different, right? So it's, I need to go find what is the target audience that I'm going to go after and what is their pain, right? Do those pains actually line up with the value that I'm trying to bring to the table? And if not, that's not a reflection on me. It's just a reflection of what we call product market fit, right? So basically product market fit is a, is a uh, two-sided dance, right? Because the thing is the market, the audience has some set of needs and you are some product and kind of you're all trying to figure out like do you fit and so if there's not a fit it doesn't mean that you're bad it just means that that market doesn't fit so go find another market right or go refine your product refine yourself so that you fit the market that you're trying to go after right so i think one of the things that i see a lot of people not do is actually tangibly decide i'm going to go after this one specific company and i'm going to just chase them down i'm just going to go really understand why are they trying to hire for this role? What are the kinds of skill sets that they're missing, right? Not, not what are the skill sets that they want or what are the skill sets that are on the resume? Like, what is the thing that they actually cannot figure out how to do unless this person joins? And how do I show them that I'm the person who's going to get all that stuff done, right? Um, and so I say that because uh, one of the things that actually happened when I, was, um, when I was applying to be a product manager at Blend mm -hmm. is they were saying, oh, well, for this product management role, we're looking for someone who has seven years of experience. And I said, I don't know why you're talking to me because I have one and a half, right? Like this, is, yeah. this makes no sense. And as I continued to talk, it was, oh, why did they say seven? The reason why they said seven is because someone who's got seven years of experience likely has had experiences in launching a totally new product out of nothing and breaking into totally new industries, right? That is what they wanted this PM to do is called a new business initiatives product manager. And the thing is, I had done nothing but that for the last one and a half years, right? Like again, at Movoto, the thing that I was doing was creating new businesses out of nothing. I wasn't trying to figure out how to scale existing businesses, right? And they didn't need another scaler. They wanted someone to go break into a totally new field. And so I was the perfect match. They hired me as the new business initiatives product manager at Blend 
even though I wasn't qualified on paper at all, because I actually solved the pain, right? So you got to stop worrying about what is it that people are saying on paper? It's what is the actual company's problem, right? Like what problem do they not know how to attack? How do I demonstrate to them that I am the one person who's going to fix this problem the best? They'll take you every time, right? So when you think about it less as, oh my gosh, I'm a candidate and I'm like fighting against all these other candidates for this role, right? It's, it's not that I want to be a software engineer. It's that I am trying to create value in the world, right? Who is my target audience and what are they struggling with? How do I unlock that value for them? When you go into that interview process, it's then less about, oh no, did I shake their hand hard enough? Or, oh no, am I saying the right things? It's let's work together to understand what your pain is as a company, because trust me, I know how to solve it, right? Like when you bring in that confidence, they're going to take you, right? So just yeah. really think about it as it is not that I want to be a developer or I want to be a designer or that I want to be a product manager. It's none of that. It's there is a pain out there in the world. I am the best equipped to go solve that pain. But first, I need to know who am I solving the pain for and what pain am I actually solving for, right? Because as, as, as another quick example, right? Mm -hmm. I am currently specialized as a business to business product manager, right? And that means that I happen to not be a business to consumer product manager. I have not run an A-B test in years, right? Because business to business PMs don't run A-B tests as frequently because they're working with institutions. They're not working with millions of kind of uh, similarly looking consumers, right? And so you can't really A-B test like a company, right? And so from that yeah. perspective, I'm not gonna be a good fit for B2C and that's okay because that's not my fit, right? Kind of, you know, the way that credit cards aren't used a lot in, China, let's say, the way that Snapchat doesn't really work for grandparents, there are just some companies that you're not going to be a good fit for, and that is yeah. completely okay. Stop worrying about the ones that you're not going to be a good fit for. Find the one that you will be a fit for, because you only need one company to say yes. Right? So go find the company that has a problem and figure out how do I solve this problem and get them to say yes. You don't need a billion offers. You just need to find the one company that's going to find value from you. I wholeheartedly agree with all that. I would say you have to focus in and find a few companies narrow down, solve their problems, totally. show them that you could solve that problem, then you'll get the job. But uh, there's, there's some people that they say, hey, it's a numbers game and spray and pray that resume wherever you go. It doesn't uh, work. Trust me, I've tried it before. It <laughs> yeah, well, one, one question uh, Beth had mm -hmm. is how do you get PM experience when you don't have a job? Uh, trying to get the first job in tech, have been learning as a developer, but past work experience plays more to PM. So it's recommended to go for PM. Yeah, great question. So I think a couple of things that I want to first pause on is, you know, is it true that you want to be a product manager, right? Because again, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, you know, people assume things about product management that aren't true, right? And so one of the things that you need to keep in mind as a product manager is you're going to be in meetings a lot of the time because meetings are a great way to get a bunch of people to be aligned at the same pace, right? Like if you try to send people a bunch of Slack messages or you send people a bunch of emails, it's not going to work, right? So like, you're going to be in meetings from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And they have to work after that because you only had the meetings to align people. You haven't actually done the work yet. And so I think a lot of folks actually go from product out into becoming developers or designers because then they feel that I am creating things all the time. It's not that my time is spent managing people and making stuff happen. It's I actually get to do the work, right? So, you know, just because someone recommended for you to do product management, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but think about it carefully from your own perspective is that the pain that I want to solve in the world, right? Like, is that what I really, really want to go do? Or do I happen to have so much fun with development that maybe I should just keep being a developer, right? So again, um, that is completely up to you because you know yourself the best. So I, I can't really give you specific advice there. 
But if I were in the situation, right, of, you know, I am, I am training as a dev, but I'm more likely to break in a PM and I want to be a PM, I think one of the things that can help is to demonstrate to other people your product management experience by basically, like, the thing that you need to do is you need to help recruiters close the gap, right? Because the thing is, yes, there are so many people who are all trying to apply to be product managers. And so the thing is, companies are spoiled for choice. They have so much potential supply. And so if you can't close the gap in their minds ASAP, they're just going to say, eh, I got another resume I can go look at and they'll go look, right? And so you need to catch their attention by demonstrating that you can already go solve their pain, right? So again, it's all about understanding what kind of pain that company has and demonstrating that you are a really good fit for that. Because again, the thing is, there are so many different kinds of product managers, right? Like let's say a technical product manager, someone who works with APIs all the time is a completely different beast from someone who is a mobile PM. A mobile PM, you know, is a lot more focused on user experiences, whereas a technical PM is way more focused on like the technical uh, infrastructure and the scalability, right? And so if you don't dictate I'm going to be a technical PM and you try to apply for all these mobile PM roles where you're expected to know user experiences and A-B testing, it's not going to help, right? Similarly, right, like, are you a product manager who is going to do business to consumer or business to business? Are you public sector, private sector, or nonprofit, right? Like, are you aiming for a really big company or really tiny company? Um, you know, are you going to be tackling, um, what's it called? Um, are you going to be tackling totally new initiatives that have never existed before? Are you going to be scaling existing initiatives, right? Kind of each of those different decisions requires a different kind of product manager. And so it's really important for you to not just say, I want to be a PM, but I want to be this specific PM for this specific company because it solves this one particular pain, right? So again, we got to go all the way back to what is the pain that the company has? And then from there, we can then figure out what are the experiences that I must have to demonstrate that I will solve the pain, right? So again, Let's say that I am applying to be a new business initiatives PM at some, let's say, 10-person startup, right? Yeah. The thing that I really need to go focus on in my resume, right, or in my side projects is I can identify new markets. I can go talk to people. I can synthesize a bunch of results, right? Like, I don't care that you know how to A-B test if I'm this 10-person startup trying to find a new market because I don't need you to scale my market. I need you to go find another one, right? So you really need to go focus on, okay, how do I do all the qualitative interviews and all the business research? On the flip side, if it's, we are looking for a growth product manager, right? A growth product manager or a growth hacker, someone who is trying to, you know, increase um, volumes by 50%, 100%, whatever, you need to go demonstrate that you know how to run experiments. You need to go demonstrate that you really understand the data analytics and the psychology. And if you don't have that in your resume, if you're saying, oh, well, I know how to go find these totally new markets, that's not going to help you. So it's all about figuring out what is that company's specific pain for that specific role then work backwards and demonstrate that I have the skills to go do this. If you don't have the skills, that's okay, because we can all create side hobbies or side initiatives whenever, right? Kind of, it is, it has never been easier to attempt to kick off a new app idea or to attempt to kick off a new initiative outside of work. And so um, if you're looking to have those experiences to try to close that gap, I recommend doing that if you don't currently have the job that you want. Great, great advice. No, honestly, I, I learned a lot. Like I thought I knew product management. I, I did learn some new things. So Clement, you know, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this knowledge. Uh, for, for anyone that, that listened and enjoyed, you know, definitely like the video, subscribe. We'll be back here on Wednesday night at eight. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll be having you, a new guest every single week. So hopefully they'll be as awesome as Clement, who definitely dropped a lot of knowledge on us. But otherwise, until next time, thanks again for everyone for joining and have a good day. Thanks so much.